Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is the podcast. Well, we are here recording in the podcast room of the Her and Him World Headquarters in beautiful historic Corona, California, <laughs> on the week of Easter. Holy Week. Yes, it is Holy Week, or it's Passion Week. Mm-hmm. Whenever I think passion, that always sounds like such an upbeat word, but the reason why we use that word in reference to the week of Easter is that it comes from the Greek word for suffering or endurance, and it's in reference to Jesus' death and the manner of his death. That's why they call it the Passion of the Christ. I feel like that brought the mood down immediately from the celebration of it is Easter week, but yes. it's an important week, and uh, it's probably the most important week for Christians on our calendar. Yeah, there's a lot happening in Holy Week. I mean, each day throughout the history of church has been significant as we approach Friday and then moving into Sunday, which is the day we celebrate. And Friday is also really significant, which is actually the day that we want to talk about this week because Oftentimes when you think of Good Friday, as it's called good, we usually have some sort of a more somber attitude going into Good Friday and it brings upon emotions of just sadness and reflecting on the crucifixion of Jesus, which is not a beautiful thing. It's horrific and it's painful and it's devastating if we just hold on to Friday by itself. And so it's always been interesting to me how it's been called Good Friday. When any service I have ever been to, it's never felt so good. Yeah, and so that's what we want to explore today is some of the ways in which the church has historically and even like currently understood Good Friday and how we should, you know, feel on that day or how we should Mm -hmm. commemorate it or celebrate it and whether the way that we have come to understand it is the most helpful way to understand it and if so in what ways and if not in what other ways should we be looking at it and as you said it's often a day of really kind of mourning and it's a dark day in a lot of ways and so Just to give everybody an idea, maybe you've had a Good Friday service at your church or um, you've just had some experience with this. Uh, But just to give you an idea, I did some searching around on the internet for some resources for Christians and churches on Good Friday. It's the best way to search anything. On the internet, yeah. On the internet. Yeah. Uh, But I I just wanted to kind of see what was out there, what resources people were putting out there with regard to Good Friday, just to kind of get like a good read and kind of take the temperature of like what's the vibe out there with regard to Good Friday. And I actually found a couple of different things. I found a lot of things, but I'm only going to tell you about a couple of them. And one was actually this website that offered an outline uh, for what your church should do on Good Friday and what your Good Friday service should look like. And it was actually quite interesting because the title of the website is Good Friday Service, A Funeral for Jesus. What a fun service to attend. Yeah. (laughs) Pack up all the kids. We're going to church. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, kids. The start of spring break. Jesus is dead. Let's go to church. Yeah. 
We're going to attend a funeral tonight. That's really interesting that they were so blatant in calling it a funeral. And it'll be even more interesting as you read what they actually prescribe you do in your Good Friday service for your congregation. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair to these people, they're trying to be helpful. They're trying to be, you know, provide resources for churches. I just don't know if this is the way to go about it. But here's what their website says. Here are some quotations from our site. Quote, in this service, we put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus's family and closest friends as they mourned his death. They did not have a funeral for Jesus, but they saw his body and knew that he died. In our culture, we have a funeral for people who have died. When we perform that ritual, it is clear that someone has passed away. Having a service that is funeral-like on Good Friday can hammer home to us in a very deep and visceral way that Jesus really died. Most people have been to many Good Friday services where it is explained that Jesus died for our sins. That is an important message, but not one that I think this service is about. This service doesn't talk about that since we are putting ourselves in the shoes of the disciples and Jesus' family. Just after he died, they were left in a time of shock, of wondering, and of not understanding. So that sounds pretty bleak to me, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like they're trying to shock their congregation. (laughs) And I don't think church is supposed to be about shock. Yeah, and also it it struck me strange to say like, now Jesus did die for your sins, but that's not what this service is about. Oh, yeah, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, I thought that was... That's interesting. You're, you're, so you're like, the idea is you're putting yourself in the shoes of the disciples who had just seen Jesus die. Mm-hmm. They didn't know, they didn't understand the significance of that uh, other than their leader was dead and they didn't know, obviously, that he was going to raise from the dead. They that, didn't... That was a surprise to them. They didn't know that. So it's about like putting ourselves in their shoes in that mm-hmm. moment. So the website goes on and it says, for this service, it's important that the feel of a funeral is cultivated. If you have prelude music at a funeral, do that now. If there is a book to sign in at a funeral, do that now. If you have special bulletins at funerals, put the order of service in the bulletin. If you have ushers that are giving out the bulletins at a funeral, do that now. If a minister walks solemnly <laughs> into the service during the funeral with the congregation standing, do that now. If you have special flowers on the sanctuary table for a funeral, do that now. It's important that the songs sung in the service are funeral-like songs, not songs that explain the whole story of salvation, since that is not the story that the disciples would have known on this day. This just strikes me odd in many ways. And one is also thinking, what kind of a funeral are these people having? It sounds like a really old white people funeral. Well, not only that, but when it says not to explain the whole salvation story. If someone in your congregation has died, it's meant to also be a celebration in some way as you are excited about them coming face to face with Jesus and the celebration of that and the salvation of their life. So it's really weird that they are explicitly saying, hey, cut out the whole salvation piece. That's central to what we do. At church. That's what church is about. Right. Yeah. Like it all hinges on that. Yeah. But it's all that from their perspective, it's all about living in the moment of what Friday was like in that moment. Okay. Which I didn't know that. So that's what they're trying to cultivate. There's another website that I saw that offered 19 things you should or shouldn't do 
on Good Friday, and we won't read all of them to you. But there were some interesting ones on there. One was that since we're mourning the death of Jesus, silence should pervade the day. The whole day? The whole day. Especially the hours between noon and three, because that's traditionally held. That's when Jesus was on the cross and when he actually died. Uh, socializing should be kept to a minimum with things being done quietly. We should wear black. We shouldn't attend a sporting event, go to a movie, have marital relations, go to a restaurant, conduct any business, or use the internet for pleasure. So in short, we should maintain a sense of solemnity and mourning throughout the day, and again, especially between the hours of noon and 3 p.m., because that's traditionally when it's understood that Jesus was on the cross. So we should have a day of silence and wearing all black and mourning because of Jesus' death. There are a lot of issues that I have with this view in the way that you should understand Good Friday, especially because a lot of the New Testament points back to Good Friday and points back to the crucifixion and what Jesus did on the cross. And I never get this understanding of the way that we should remember Good Friday. Yeah, and I think these two examples that I've cited, obviously I cited them because they're the most egregious. But I think a lot of us walk around with a more reasonable understanding that is similar in this vein that this should be a day of solemnity, should be a day of mourning and silence because it's a day of death, really. Hmm. And so I think that's been the common understanding of Good Friday for a long time. But with respect, I disagree with that understanding of Good Friday. Uh, Even though I understand how we got there, I don't think Good Friday should be a, a service of mourning. I don't think it should be a sad service. I think it should actually be a service of celebration. And a lot of times when I've said that to people in the past, when I've been putting together Good Friday services, they kind of look at me like I got three heads. Like, what do you mean? Which should be, so Jesus is dead. Right. We Why don't should... celebrate until Sunday. Right. Yeah. We wear black today. Everything is black. Yeah. Everything is sad. Everything yeah. is, you know, whatever until Sunday. And um, so I'd love to take an opportunity in this podcast to say why I don't think treating Good Friday service like a funeral is a good idea um, or even the most biblical idea. Mm. And uh, we can center our conversation uh, really on Jesus's words as he was on the cross. And what he said on the cross, if you take it just with these words alone, as you hear them right now, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense why we have a sense of mourning on Good Friday. And the words that he says were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And traditionally, these words have been understood and interpreted one way that has led us to think Good Friday services should be a funeral service. And that understanding comes from this idea that when Jesus was on the cross, he was forsaken by God. So in our understanding of Trinitarian theology, we know that God the Father and God the Son are co-eternal and have experienced union with one another since eternity past. But in this moment in time, it would seem as if God the Father and God the Son have been separated and they are no longer in unity with one another. And understanding 
Jesus's words in this way raise a lot of questions about the Trinity, raise a lot of questions about how is it that God the Father and God the Son can exist since eternity past in unity with one another, but then here in this moment, that has been fully separated. How is God separated from himself? Right, and this has been the understanding that has been you know, long understood throughout, you know, a lot of generations of theologians that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They've looked at that moment and, and see like, see, this is where, where God, the father was separated from Jesus, God, the son for the first time since eternity passed. And he's feeling the, the weight of that separation. It's in this moment that he feels the eternal weight of our sin and mm-hmm. the debt of our sin, which is eternal separation from God. He's feeling that eternally in this moment. And that's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then as to your point, that raises a bunch of questions. Like how can the one essence of God in three persons be torn apart? Then we get this kind of bi-theism or tritheism. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it's, creates all these kind of metaphysical existential questions when it comes to our understanding of the Trinity. Trinity. And if that's where the text takes us to these weird tensions that we have to then solve and think about, that's okay because that's the work of interpreting the scripture. That's the work of theology to kind of make all these pieces fit together into this one coherent message that we know that God has given us. However, I think sometimes our interpretation creates a tension that it doesn't necessarily need to create. And I think that that is something that has happened with this Bible passage. We're maybe looking at it at a different way than what Jesus was actually saying and actually experiencing in that moment. And he says this both, it's both quoted in Matthew and in Mark, but I'm kind of focusing on on Matthew 27. Like what was Jesus really saying in that moment? And he's actually quoting something. Which is not abnormal for Jesus to do. He's actually quoting a verse from the Old Testament, which again is typical of Jesus to do, and which really would have been typical for any rabbi to do at that time. They would have known the Old Testament really well and have been able to recite it, especially in their teachings, been able to mention it, off the cuff because they were so aware of what it said. And we see Jesus do that throughout his ministry. And particularly in this moment on the cross, we can see these exact words are part of a larger scripture from the Old Testament. And that actually comes from Psalm 22. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is actually a quote from the opening verses of Psalm 22. Yeah, and when Jesus quotes the first line of something, this is something that rabbis would do at the time, where they would quote one line of something or a couple of lines of something, and it was implied that what they were referring to was the whole body of text. Uh, In this case, the whole psalm. Or if they were quoting something from a passage of Deuteronomy, they're quoting that, that whole section. They were just saying one part of it. And then it would recall to the memory of everybody there because they were so familiar with the scriptures right. that they would say they would know exactly what you were talking about without you needing to spell out the entire thing. And so when Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 22, that's what he's doing. And really, that's something that even we do today. Right. Like if I say, when in Rome, like you know, it's implied, do what the Romans do. What do what the Romans do. Or if I say, if you have to ask how much it costs. I don't know that one. Then you can't afford it. Oh. 
Well, some of these are more universal than others. Sorry, apparently. I know when in Rome, but the other <laughs> one I'm not aware of. <laughs> but the the end of the statement is implied. Like, if you have to ask how much it costs, right, and then you kind of trail off, and you think, like, then you probably can't afford it. Um, but you don't actually say it because sometimes it just feels on the nose. You just quote the first half, and the the second half is implied. Now, this is a much longer piece of literature that he's he's quoting. It's not just you know, the second line, but we even do that as well. Like, uh, if I say the term big brother, big brother, you know that it's in reference to the government, right? But it's, it's, it's importing this meaning from the book 1984, where the big bad government of that book was called big brother. And there are this oppressive regime that thought policed and all that kind of stuff. So you, when you say, Oh, big brother's watching, like that's importing all of that meaning from that novel. Right into that that sentence that you're you're conveying now same thing with like the term gaslighting that actually came from a a a movie in the 1940s called gaslight wherein a husband tried to convince his wife that she was crazy by basically psychologically and emotionally manipulating her and that's what gaslighting is but you're importing the meaning of that movie just from that that the title yeah right right and so much so in that case that we use that term without even knowing where it came from necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's still importing all of that meaning. So in the same way, Jesus, as he's quoting the first line of Psalm 22, he's implying the entire message of Psalm 22. So in order to understand what he was talking about, we need to pull up Psalm 22. So turning your Bibles to Psalm 22. <laughs> Which is a long psalm. It is, but I think it's important to to look at kind of the whole thing. No, I agree, but um, I'm just preparing. Our preparing listeners. the like, oh, buckle in. Well, it's just a long one. It's not as short because you have some psalms that are, you know, three, four verses. This is not. Yeah, it's shorter than Psalm uh, one nineteen, but right. it's longer than other psalms that are. Yeah. Shorter than that. Okay. <laughs> so here's Psalm twenty two, and the first verse is, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And that's what Jesus said. But then it goes on. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And you think like, well, yeah, this is the same thing that we were saying that it was about. But verse 2, he kind of continues on. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And so this happens a lot in lament psalms where there's a turn, where there's this trust in God. And this happens in the third verse already. It's pretty quick This for this psalm. It is, yeah. So it's a quick it's a quick lament at the, the front end. That there's a suffering and then it, it turns to that affirmation of trust. And then it kind of flip-flops back a little bit here in verse 6. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, th- this is exactly... What's happening? You see the story unfolding right. through the psalm. And it goes on. Yet you have brought me out of the womb. You have made me to trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. 
Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, the strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and my bones are all out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, and it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And again, you just see the the imagery of Jesus hanging on the cross that no one yeah. is coming to help him. That they're he, he is and they're surrounding him, and they're the ones who put him in this place. Yeah, that his 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 bones are out of joint, and yeah. he's thirsty, and all of this is happening on the cross. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me, and that's exactly what was happening. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Which actually happened. Which actually happened. So Jesus is literally living out this psalm as yeah. it happens. It says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. And this is getting towards the end, so it's really going to start to turn here. You who fear God, praise him. You descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to all the people yet unborn that he has done it. Amen. So so it took a real turn (laughs) there in the end of that psalm. And all of this is echoing exactly what Jesus came to do, that he was in this affliction that was meant for us. And really, as you look at the theme of Matthew a big theme of Matthew is that Jesus is refiguring kind of the history of Israel, that he in his body is embodying everything that Israel was meant to be as a light to the nations, as the chosen people, that he is the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah that he has come, and he's perfectly fulfilling everything that Israel was meant to be and, and bringing redemption into that. And so he's feeling the affliction that was meant for us. But then even in the midst of that, he is experiencing the victory of this moment because this is a moment of victory because this is where Jesus's obedience is brought to a climax. And once he says on the cross, it is finished, that's the moment that's talked about in Genesis 3 where it says mm-hmm. that the, the serpent will bruise his heel and he will crush the head of the serpent. When Jesus says it is finished, that like Satan has just 
lost. Like the game is over at this point. And so this is the great moment that Generations Future will talk about because this is the moment where Jesus completed his perfect obedience with his life and he gave up his life. No one took it from him mm-hmm. and he gave it up with a cry of strength and he yielded his spirit because what he had done was finished in this moment. And this was his moment of victory. Yeah, and this psalm, really, if you if you try and step back and look at what is this psalm really talking about, this is a psalm of victory. And so, yeah, we see the lament in the beginning and we, we see it a bit in the middle. But overall, this would not be classified as a lament psalm. This would be a victory psalm. And that comes at the end of the suffering and the disgrace. And it is interesting uh, in verse 24 of this psalm, it says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry from help for help. And so that would actually be counter to what people typically believe Jesus meant when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, that he was God forsaken in right. that moment. And it's it's saying in this psalm, no, God has not hidden his face. God has not stepped away from the afflicted one. He has heard my cry for help and he has helped me. And so when we put it in the context of the entire psalm, what we see is a cry of victory and not a cry of of helplessness or weakness. Right. And not this cry of existential separation from the eternal father between the eternal father and the eternal son. Right. It's actually this moment where Jesus is tipping his hand that he knows exactly what's happening in this moment. And it's interesting because the people who are standing at the foot of the cross who are, you know, jeering at him, they they just assume he's delirious and he doesn't even know what he's talking about. And so they make fun of him even more. And they say, oh, he's calling to Elijah to save him or let him, you know, let God save him from the cross. And, and in many ways with them not even realizing it, they're playing into the very story that Jesus is telling when he is bringing up this psalm, which the end of the psalm is ending in his victory. And so he knows that in this moment. Mm-hmm. And this is the moment where it actually is happening. Right. And so there are three top reasons why we think Good Friday shouldn't be a funeral for Jesus, but should actually be a celebration. And one of those reasons is because, like Dale just said, Jesus didn't pretend that he didn't know the end of the story, and neither should we. So Jesus, by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting this psalm, and in the end, it's victory. He already knew this was victory. Even if in that moment the people around him didn't realize that, he was proclaiming that victory because he knew it was already fulfilled. And so he already knew it and he didn't shy away from declaring it. And we know it because we know the end of the story. And so we shouldn't shy away of knowing the victory is ours. Right. And so there's something to be said about putting yourself into the realism of the moment of what was happening there. Um, what the, cause the disciples didn't understand what was happening. The people who were crucifying him didn't understand who was happening. He was the only one that knew what was happening. But in retrospect, as the story is told from the perspective of the apostles with the benefit of hindsight, they're telling you the story 
with the end in mind. So when it comes to a scriptural account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's all leading to this death that we know is only going to last until the third day. And so what what Matthew is doing is he's tipping that hand to you to, to let you know that this is the moment of victory. We thought it was the moment of defeat in the moment, mm. but it really wasn't. And so he's doing everything he can in a couple of different places in Matthew 27 to point you to the fact, because he keeps, he keeps pointing back with the, by mirroring the language of Psalm 22, where he talks about the garments, where he talks about being pierced, where right. he talks about, yeah. you know, all my bones are on display. Like he's mirroring that Psalm as much as he can to show you that Matthew understands exactly what Jesus is saying when he quotes that psalm, that he knows the end of the story. We know the end of the story now, and so we don't have to pretend like we don't. We don't have to pretend <laughs> like like Jesus is still in the grave. Mm. Like the tomb is still empty on Friday. Mm. Yeah. And the second reason is that Jesus' death was for once and for all. So as Jesus died once and for all, for all of our sins, that we might have life in him. And so we don't need to continue to re-crucify him every year on Good Friday. Right. He did it just the once. We don't need to crucify him every single spring just so that we can celebrate that he rose from the dead. Like we can just celebrate the the victory of the moment. Like we don't have to yeah. really be fixated on the gory graphic horribleness and the scientific pull medical journals and all kinds of stuff that happens been in on a good lot Friday of good service. Friday services that talk about the scientific aspects of what his body went through and what was happening in the culture during that time. And it is pretty horrific. Not that we need to shy away from those details or not care about them or not feel the weight of them. Because obviously what Jesus did was significant for a number of reasons. But we don't have to become so fixated on the details of his crucifixion. Right. And it is interesting. Sorry. I just want to finish this thought even though it sounded like I was done. Um, (laughs) People don't realize I edit out the pauses where it sounded like you're finishing a sentence and then you... Continue I pick back up. Yeah. yeah well, because there'll be like a four second pause. And then you try and talk, and I'm like, wait, I wasn't done. <laughs> it only sounded like it because I paused for five and a half seconds. It's kind of like when um, Silas is uh, not watching whatever is on TV, and we turn it off or we change it, and then he gets mad. Like, hey, I was watching that. It's kind of like that. Well, now you know where hey, he gets it from. I was speaking that sentence. Hey, I wasn't done thinking. <laughs> It's because my brain thinks slower than yours. <laughs> yours is like rapid fire. Mine's like, oh, okay. Just moseying over here. So I believe what I was trying to say is that it is interesting. We don't actually see as many details within scripture of the goriness and the gruesome experience that Jesus had to the degree that I've heard it preached in sermons. So I've heard it preached and it they're like they're describing what a whip would have been like with the glass shards on the end and they're in the skin and they're pulling out like ribbons. And and so I know there's some depiction of that in scripture that we hear, but I've always heard more about the crucifixion and what it was like 
based on other historical information that we have, not based on what we actually find in scripture, which I just think is interesting because that wasn't the focus of the narrative that was happening. Right. And we end up focusing on it. Yeah. Like there shouldn't have to be like a viewer discretion advisory on your church service for a good Friday. Like I shouldn't have to like be like, should my kids come or are they going to get some kind of like R-rated Mel Gibson version of whatever Good Friday service is like, and it is just kind of I don't know. It's like this weird unhealthy fixation with the the violence of it is the part that we fixate on, and we like there's the shock value. Uh, there's I don't know. There's some kind of like I don't want to say entertainment value, but like that's kind of that's what it is. It's kind of what it feels like, and I think some pastors believe in order for you to understand the weight of your sin, you need to understand the degree to which Jesus had to suffer to remove the weight of your sin. And so in order for us to get you to realizing you are a sinner in need of a savior, we need to back it up a few steps and show you the price that was paid for it. And so in order to do that, they have to become just really graphic and pull on your emotions, which shouldn't be the way you come to salvation. Like it shouldn't be through this guilt, which usually that's what it ends up being when you hear about all that Jesus had to do to pay for your sins. It often becomes this response of guilt that you come yeah. And realize like, oh, I do need Jesus. Wow, I'm like I can't believe he had to do that for me. And so it's just a hard balance. And that's not the story that Matthew's telling. Mm, yeah. It's not guilt. Well, yeah, and that's kind of our third point is that Jesus didn't die so that you could feel guilty about it every spring. He died so that your guilt could be removed. And also for Matthew's perspective, he he died in a completion of the obedience that Israel was never able to do. And he he took all of the, the weight of that on himself. And th- this is the moment where that is complete and he has defeated Satan in, in this moment. And and so yes, theologically, yes, he died for our sins, that the, the weight of our sin was placed on him, that you know he was crushed for our iniquities. But even in like as you're reading one of the four gospel accounts or preaching from it. We just do a lot of violence to the text, and it's not there to make us feel guilty. Like, Good Friday service is not so that we could feel guilt. Mm. It's actually the opposite. Right. And I remember growing up in church and hearing a lot of people just, like, weeping during Good Friday service. And I, even after being a Christian, felt really bad that I wasn't moved to tears in the Good Friday service. And I would constantly be praying through that, like, Lord, do I just not understand the weight of my sin? Am I just missing it? Am I, do I think I'm better than the rest of the people who are here on their face weeping? (laughs) They're weeping. You think you're better than me? Well, it's just, I struggled with the fact that I wasn't crying on Good Friday. Hmm. It really bothered me. I thought I was less of a Christian and I didn't understand what Jesus did for me because I wasn't crying in Good Friday service. Did you cry on Thursday of summer camp? Thursday night? Cry night? I never went to summer camp. <sighs> See, well, that's another strike against you. Like, this is... 
Maybe that's why. It's looking real bleak. <laughs> no, but you're right. It's um, it almost reaches the the point of like self flagellation, you know. Mm. Yeah, uh, and that's just that's just not what I think is intended. And I think it is as an addendum to this. I think maybe the reason why we do this is because we, as the evangelical church, broadly speaking, we don't hold enough space for public lament in the church, I don't think. Hmm. Where, you know, every, all of our songs are in a major key. It's always like, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, we don't like to sit in the pain of things. We'll acknowledge the pain of things, like kind of in passing, but only on our way to make the point hmm. of hope, which obviously the point is hope. Uh, but I think if you look at the scriptures, particularly like the Psalms, one third of them are lament Psalms. We don't maybe hold enough space for sorrow and pain and grief. And so really what I think we end up doing is we hold all that in until Good Friday service and then we get it all out on Good Friday. Mm. And then we just let it build up again until next spring. I had a a bit of a different experience in church where there was a lot of space for that within the church service on Sundays. I think to the point to where maybe it scared some people away because there was a lot of crying in church at some point. And I remember several times where I was one of those people just like weeping at church, not necessarily only on Good Friday, but... I think you're right. There does need to be more space for the pain and the sorrows because Jesus is very open about that. He asked God, like, can you take this cup from me? Yeah, I mean, he's described in Isaiah as a man of sorrows. Right. So Jesus knew about that out of anyone. He, He knew the depths of the pain and the depths of the sorrow and what that meant. So certainly in our church services, there needs to be space for that. Because Jesus himself made space to express those emotions in his life. And we see them documented in the New Testament because they were significant enough to be documented in the New Testament. And so again, I do think you're right that we need to make space for that and make space for pain so that we can get to the hope part. Like you can't just brush over your pain and always be in the spirit of, hope as if the pain doesn't exist yeah so as you celebrate holy week this week hopefully you can do so with uh maybe a little bit of sense of relief this year that uh you don't have to keep a bunch of ash on your head and wear sackcloth on friday but it's actually just as much a celebration and a victory as it is on sunday and really, Sunday is is the proof positive uh, that mm-hmm. Jesus' victory was won on Friday. That if Jesus stayed dead on Friday, then he was just a guy. But the fact that we know that he did raise, it, it means that even his death was a victory because his death is what was the final blow to Satan. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also, be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you. 
So you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Want to learn more about God and his will for your life one verse at a time? I'm Quinice Petway, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. I'm inviting you to tune in and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.